Now more than ever, the industry that fuels the world needs the right people to modernize and unify a global energy platform. The transformation is both digital and cultural. Join us as we explore strategies for success in the hyper-competitive war for talent here on the Energy Workforce of Tomorrow podcast, hosted by the IBM North American Oil and Gas Team and KIT. Welcome back to the Energy Workforce of Tomorrow podcast. I'm Jerry Lewis with IBM Consulting. The podcast you are about to listen to is part two of the CEMEX Digital Transformation and Talent Strategy discussion. If you haven't yet listened to part one, hit pause and listen to it. It sets critical context you'll want to have and is a worthy discussion on digital transformation in its own right. In part two, Alberto de Armas, head of HR for Semex, a global cement manufacturer based in Mexico, talks with Jason Duff and I about how Semex's talent strategy evolved over the many years of the transformation and what their focus is today. It contains critical insights and lessons for the oil and gas and energy industries and should help you shape your own approach to attracting and retaining the energy workforce of tomorrow. We hope you enjoy it. And as always, we'd love your feedback on the discussion via LinkedIn or other channels. You were great at reminding us that the point of this podcast was to talk about talent and skills. We hadn't even got there yet. And I know that that was because that wasn't a priority early in the journey. But now as we progress... And you start thinking about, I'll tell a little bit of what happened. We stood up a kind of executive education. You referred to some MIT education for the top you know, 12, 15, then top 70. They got education in agile and digital and customer experience design thinking, and then out to the top 200 and then so on, right? So you built a model to distribute education, vernacular, a common like language so that everybody could communicate. I thought that was an excellent thing that you did. But then there was this notion of, well, okay, you know, I've got product owners who are guys that, you know, work in the business, which is good, but they're kind of one foot in, one foot out because they're six months, maybe a year, like how long? Can you talk a little bit about what was the strategy around using people in the business for digital stuff and customer experience stuff versus bringing new people in? Okay, so first, was this a serious development project? Because, you know, with these types of initiatives, you know, you get our top guys from the business and you send them over there and they're afraid that they're going to be marooned, right, on the <laughs> island. If it doesn't work out, the scars will be, you know, they won't heal, right? And there was this collective effort, Jerry described part of it, of communicating to the organization this ambition and that this ambition now had become, you know, the most relevant strategic initiative of the company. And, you know, we were going to, independent of the results of the quarter or the year where, you know, we were committed with a certain amount of financial support, of people support, and of management attention to seeing this through. And I also think that that was very relevant because at the beginning, we would want a few guys from logistics or supply chain and a few, and we would get average guys, right? But what became clear is that you can't outsource this. At the beginning, you know, Jerry and his guys were all, you know, they were so nice. And, you know, so we needed 10 people. There would be 15 of them would be arriving. And, you know, no, we need whatever. And pretty soon we had a a large staff of folks from IBM and some other partners. It was very difficult to manage that period because they really didn't understand our business, right, at the core. But they did understand the transformation project. So there was a disconnect between you know, this is what I do. I just need to know what's your product and I'll connect it into this nice little (laughs) process. And so we felt like 
as a company that we had to go in this journey with really our best people, the people that knew the business and the people that could most quickly disertain the customer's aspirations in our platform. And I have a lot of stories, but I will tell, I'll tell one. And that is our platform, you know, is very limited for payments, for electronic payments. And, you know, because it's an industry, that's the way to get finance, free, zero, zero percent financing is saying, oh, all the receipts aren't here. Or the invoice day is the, is the day after the day that it got here. So I need that. So there's a lot of running around and, you know, kind of pushing the payment back. And so we started this effort of teaching our customers really how much money they're actually investing in managing their payables and how much we're investing in managing our accounts receivables. We started working with one of the scrums that's focused on administering the customer relationship. And that was one of our top guys from our business. So he's out of his role. He is managing a scrum team that all they're doing is administration. And one of the challenges was that the banks would have these pop-up blockers when their payments would come through our platform into the bank, right? And these guys, I mean, it was really amazing. You know, that first of all, in their stand-up meetings and all the rituals that Jerry had us doing, (laughs) that problem very quickly made its way to the top of the list of relatively easy to implement with a very high impact to the customer experience. And these guys solved it in days. You know, think about changing something on the SAP platform to make a payment. I mean, it's just this is an impossibility how fast they identified the problem, they evaluated the complexity of managing it, and they changed it. And that created not only a much more attention from the business towards these development efforts, but it created a lot of visibility to the people that were managing the efforts. So we were able now to get much better talent into the transformation teams. How has that helped you then retain and attract the staff? Because clearly, if you the story that, and I've, this is the first time I've heard it, I mean, clearly from yourself of listening to this, a great transformation. I think as you've transferred everything, has it made it easier or more difficult or the same in terms of attracting the staff, given the roles that you need the people to do now are much more, you know, is it more interesting? Is it less manual and more automated, et cetera? What's your, is there any feeling of that from you? That's a really interesting question. Let's say you're part of a team, a real estate team or whatever, and while you're gobbling up properties and whatever, you know, it's really easy to keep things going. But when, let's say you slow down your purchases or you are not doing so many in this, and now you're going to individual homes Same or something. You know, so the challenge is more how do you keep this talent leveraged, right? That's really been our issue. But clearly, People want to be in this area. And so we've been trying to connect it with what Semex Ventures does and how do we staff some of the new opportunities there and how and how we're also going through an effort of trying to spin off components of the digital platform that we feel that could be valuable as an independent business. Nice. And so this talent has kind of made its way towards those types of initiatives. But you have to say, I have to be honest, we were in a just a company-wide, complete focus transformation where we had maybe 35 scrum teams just on cement, right? And so, you know, we don't have 35 in different projects now. So that has been a challenge. Yeah. So Alberto, I think we've missed one thing though here. 
the development of the platform, the Semexco platform, we'll put a link to Semexco and to Semex in the notes of the show, but the development of that platform was actually contingent upon not just the business experts that you brought in, but also a lot of technical labor. Yes. And you had an interesting, <laughs> there was a very interesting history on the tech side at Semex. And also given that you owned outright your own IT company. And so just to paint the picture a little bit, mm-hmm. you had a what, 2000 strong IT company, Naoris, that was basically an outsourced arm for tech labor that you could draw upon. And you did draw upon it heavily for the MSI. You also used some SIs, but also IBM in the past had taken over some levels of IT for you and done a lot of outsourced, you know, BPO, business process outsourcing and things like that. So there was a tension a little bit between like SIs that were working for you and also Naoris because there was a wholly owned subsidiary that did work. But at the end, you did leverage, if you called Naoris an SI, heavily leveraged SIs for those scrum teams and things. So one of the questions that I wanted to get to was like, what was the strategy on combining the sort of outsourced labor Mm. with the insourced labor and the mix and the balance there? So first is some clarity on the basic skills that we were going to need. And I will say that this is another area where we found a lot of value from IBM. Jesus Mantas connected us with a firm from Denver by the name of Galvanize. Galvanize, at the time, you know, unfortunately, Galvanize has changed CEOs, I think, five times since we met them. They've continued to evolve in time. But at the moment we met them, we met a, a couple of very, very interesting entrepreneurial fellows on technology development really was their focus. And they had a company or they have a company, but at the time it was really focused on coding, focused on process development, focused on data science. So we went to see them, you know, to kind of understand some of the talent and some of the development projects. And so we were at their New York office and they have a big center there. And there was a bunch of guys, you know, with beards like yours, kind of looked like they have Beards like Jason. Yes. Yeah, you guys haven't had a bath in a couple of weeks. And, and they, were, <laughs> they were in a room and they were in a session with Google because Google had just put out this open source product and they were learning about it so they could teach people how to code in that. So immediately what went through our head was, you know, I wonder how up-to-date our coders are, right? So this is where the talent question becomes a little dicey, right? Well, we're good at Java, basically. Or we're good at some of the basic programming languages, but this is just some, you know, as you move to the cloud and you start, you, these guys are programming with all kinds of things. And so, so the question was, who does that? And that was a moment in our transformation where we thought that we didn't have the talent. In fact, there wasn't the talent in Monterey that we needed. And so we decided together with Galvanize to start our own kind of partnership. And we opened up the Monterey Digital Hub here to try to promote talent development and skills development primarily in our ecosystem. Because for a number of reasons, the first one, selfish, right? We needed some place to train our guys in some of these new programs and some of these new philosophies. You know, Galvanize had this test where it would ask you to code something that does X and it would measure how efficient of a coder you are. And so I won't tell you how well we did on our initial test. In fact, folks didn't want to take that test, right? <laughs> so anyways, what, so that became part of trying to, this skills development effort and talent development effort that then ducktailed with where Jerry started this question was, 
we used Naotis at the time then to scale, right? But Naotis didn't have, you know, 350 guys sitting around, you know, waiting for a project, right? So we scaled together, but we used their platform, their ability to manage tech talent, their understanding of contract type relationships, of consulting type relationships for coders around the world. And we were able to set up an organization that could scale by having operations in Mexico, operations in Czech Republic, and operations in India. And between these three technology centers, we were able to get really, really interesting and top talent to participate in our project, right? And we were able to connect, really for the first time, one of our development efforts to Europe. Because usually, I don't know how it is in Houston, but you know, here at Samix is everything was born here. And it was yeah. born here based on the customers that are here, based <laughs> on the needs of our customers here. And then we force fit it around the world. So by having these three centers, we were able to do a better job, still limited, but we were able to do a better job of connecting the development work to our broader customer base. It's funny, Alberto, you say that as well, because again, something that Jerry and the team and I have been talking about is we believe in oil and gas, as everyone goes through, again, a hub or a global hub of Houston, given we're going to go through this transformation, be it digital, be it energy, buying businesses, BP just bought EDF, energy services, et cetera, all these new skills that are needed, we feel that there'll be more need for partnership. It's really interesting to understand your model because, I mean, Jerry, you and I were talking about this. We don't see the market. Forget Monterey and our business, sorry, in Houston, we won't be able to staff None of the company as much of the work as we need, and we're going to have to think in different models. I love that idea. That'd be a, a real interesting one, maybe to dig into more in the next another podcast, Jerry. Of you know, what did it look like, and then bring some others in there. I really like that. Oh yeah, yeah. Once you start working with talent that really is not this traditional technology partner or services partner, you know, we started thinking about can we open up the platform for a third party to come and program features and benefits into our model, you know, for profit, right? How do we get entrepreneurs? Does that work? Does it, have you launched that? The wave? Oh, three? yeah, 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 yeah. So our CEO, the Apple model, right? And all these guys writing code for the iPads and the iPhones, right? So he inspired the platform to be, of course, cloud-based. So anyone can get on it and to be able to have technology partners that are actually working on our platform. And so at first it was for small entrepreneurs to participate but it evolved more for our partners. You know, we had, besides IBM, we had different, you know, very, very important partners that also began to work with their people on the cloud to make our overall Semix platform stronger. So the inspiration was maybe a feature and benefit of how to estimate how much dirt is over here and, you know, using a camera, but it evolved into really a platform that could share knowledge and could also share the coding and the development responsibilities to third parties and to our other businesses around the world. And Alberto, I know that that was an ambition. I think it was, I saw a multi-wave you know, plan that Fausto mm-hmm. Sosa was launching with some of your tech staff around, like, how do you incorporate third-party development, outsource development, like truly going after the, like, the mechanical type labor and building that platform for, for coding. And like, you know, there's all kinds of stuff that goes to like the standards for the quality of it, the security, all that stuff. But you've launched that now. Are you getting value from it? Oh, yeah. It's different now because now it's not this big transformation effort that's, you know, everyone's focused on that. But it's become a, we call it a virtuous cycle 
development cycle where, where we have more and more evolution of our platform, sometimes through our own initiatives of capturing customer expectations or customer pain points, and very quickly turning that into development efforts when we find that there's a complexity, you know, the, the famous two by two, you know, how complicated is it and how expensive is it? And then at the same time, it's open to interactions with our supplier community for also innovations. And that, Jerry, has really led us to this moment where we can actually turn some of these technology capabilities into products that may be marketable or businesses that, that may be developable outside of Semix. Yeah, that's interesting. So we talk a lot about, Jason, with our oil and gas clients, about the need for relying on the ecosystem. Yep. Right. And and, yep. and having your suppliers, your partners, entrepreneurs be able to participate with you, co-create with you, and build systems that work across your value chain without having to pay for all that development yourself and building you know, new solutions and attacking or tapping new business models. That was definitely part of the early ambition we talked about, Alberto. It's really great to see that you're realizing that. I bet you we could spend an entire podcast just talking about that because this whole idea of new ecosystems, business models, tapping that and, make, and monetizing it, monetizing your data, all those things, all of our clients in this industry are interested in that. Absolutely. Right? If you had to give advice to some of the listeners in this one to think, wow, I'm about to go through this journey. What's the one thing that you'd say, dude, if you hadn't done that, the top priority thing that, you know, definitely do this. And what's the one thing that you would say, dude, I should have done less of? I mean, what's your, from experience, Alberto, what would you? It's not going to sound like, wow, that's genius. It's going to be silly. But yeah, we did learn. And it was an example that I can't remember his name, but a fellow from IBM shared with us about, you know, making a cake. It was composed of, it's one big cake, but when you look at it, it's maybe a hundred little cupcakes. And it was the yeah. cupcake model. Once you learn that, once you learn that you can start with, you know, now today at Semex, everyone knows what an MVP is, right? You know, even though it sounds a little blase today, but we were about big transformation, you know, big transformation. And then once it's installed, it's just, you know, earth shattering. And I think that that's a learning that took some time. But once we were able to really, I think, you know, fundamentally understand it and adopt it as part of our culture, that allowed us to, you know, the speed at which we moved changed dramatically. And the experimentation, we still feel like we have a challenge with getting people to experiment more. So we're always pushing that. But we did grow significantly in experimentation and course correct very quickly. Of all the things, probably that's one. And the one, and maybe before, maybe after, the one is this effort that everyone in the company kind of philosophically understands the transformation ahead. And that's the education program that we installed for our executive management. I mean, I'm talking about the president, the executive committee, all of the operational directors from around the world, one entire week in MIT. Those two things set the stage for what was to come. Everyone behind it. I thought what you were going to say, Jerry, you didn't want Jerry anymore. I would have been understandable, my child. <laughs> Once yeah. we got him out, once we got yeah. him out of the building, <laughs> that, that's when the transition took right off. Activity just went through the roof. Right? Hey, hey, but I got to ride that wave for three good years. <laughs> um, yeah. So thank you for that, Alberto. One additional comment about the tech talent, and that is we did start seeing the arrival of new profiles of executives. They really didn't meet the traditional, you know, the compensation band and, you know, this title and the office in the corner with a, you know, you have two chairs and that guy has one chair. I mean, it was, 
really well, is. You've got like five chairs in your office, Alberto, and a <laughs> yeah. couch. I don't have an office anymore. I Mine turned into a conference room. I don't have a photograph of my wife anymore. So that's oh. a sign that anyone can use my office. It's not mine. So it's, you know, how do we motivate these guys? And how do we maybe get them to think about longer tenures? How to be able to react quickly to their own short kind of project-based approach? You know, we have a very significant data science team now. You know, we have turnover in this effort. And so we're always stressed that we're not paying enough and, you know, that (laughs) our benefits don't align. And it's a challenge because they're different cultures, right? And so we have, you know, kind of in our executive ranks, we have a voluntary turnover ratio, which is below 4%, three something, very low. And these guys have this talent turns over much more. And so the instinct from the HR teams is to how do we get these tech guys to turn over at the three to 4% rate. And that's the wrong approach. So we're learning, we're still learning about managing different types of talent in the traditional schemes of the company and evolving slowly to be able to be much more plural in the types of talent and the types of skills that we have at Semex. So it's never ending, never ending. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's interesting because we see, I mean, it's a great point, Alberto, in the oil and gas industry, we see a lot of leaders come in from outside. I mean, clearly everybody's read the literature. You've got to have some percentage of new talent, new blood come in. If you're going to do digital, if you're a legacy engineering, you've brought some points counter to that today, but still, I think it's true at some level. I mean, and you had the outsourcing with Neoris and all of that. But what we see is a lot of the folks that come in from companies like say Amazon or Tesla, they kind of don't like the boundaries they face in traditional companies. And they don't always survive either because they don't feel they can be productive or the culture shock is just too great. So have you seen any of that? Because you said there's high turnover in some of these new hires. Has it been partly because of that? Or are there other reasons that you're seeing that? It's tough to put it in a box. There's different challenges. But I think that probably the worst, the one that's most difficult to confront is that we do have a talent model right? And the talent model is, you know, how do we recruit and how do we evaluate every year or every periodically the talent and how well it's doing? And then, you know, are they ready now for a promotion? Are they, you know, they successors for another role? And, you know, so we we have this cycle that really is, you know, tried and tested and it's been in place for so long. And this group of talent just doesn't you know, align so well with that. So, and also you have a talent that they're like mercenaries, right? They come in and they're, you know, they really know this one facet of it <laughs> super well. And then, you know, I'm here because I'm an expert at, you know, this or whatever. You know, it's also different from the type of talent that we, you know, we, we, we kind of have a pipeline that we do have specialists, but it, you know, kind of moves people towards a generalist type of role. And those are the, the generalists are the ones that kind of grow into the senior management positions. I mean, I'm not saying that they're not technical and they don't understand the business, but they're more general. So it's, I think the entire model, Jerry, has to be rethought. And depending on your business, now, if you're, I don't know, a tech startup, a software company, I think it's very easy because it's, you know, now their model is the model, right? But if you're a traditional manufacturing company, right? And every morning, you know, the reports come out on, you know, the last 24 hours and, you know, what were the gaps in the, in the process and, you know, what's the stoppages, mean time between failures and things like that. And that's really where the money is produced. That's really where the value exchanges hands. You have to manage these two worlds. And I think that that will always be a big challenge. 
because the customer experience at the end of the day facilitates the bag of cement from going from point A to point B. The customer experience is the one that shows a person how to use our products more uniquely and more creatively, how to use it more efficiently. But it is that bag of cement, which is the barter between mm-hmm. the customer experience and the value creation. Yeah. Yeah. I've got wow. two questions for you to kind of wrapping this up here, Alberto. What do you think Jerry Lewis could be the next Joe Rogan? And number two, <laughs> do you want to take him back from me? Because this is clearly as a podcast. You can all, we can barter for him and you can take him. I'll take some bags of cement from him. <laughs> Joe, what, first of all, Joe Rogan, Jerry Lewis, what do you think? I will say uh, Jerry has shown us again how he reinvents himself. You know, yeah, there you go. he's a digital guy and then he's a musician and, you know, now he's a podcaster. I'm going, wow, I mean, what a versatile guy. But this is the Jerry Lewis podcast. Yeah, I've just joined the Jerry Lewis podcast. Oh, here, right. Come on. That's Come right. On, so, yeah, I'm really happy to see how Jerry, you know, stimulates conversations and that's what he does best. And I think that we miss that somewhat. So it's good to be back. And the second, you know, talking is the best way to create connections and shared spaces. And we all learn. I mean, sometimes just answering questions and you're here learning and you're rethinking some things that you did. And so I'm a big believer in the medium. Alberto, I'd love to get offer you two things. If you're ever in Houston, we need to get together and I'll get some of my oil and gas clients in with you. I think the journey, what you've gone, what you've achieved, there'd be some great. I mean, you'd look at some of the companies and literally you could see Semex in all of them. And then secondly, I'd love to get you on another podcast maybe some of the universities or some of the things that Jerry and I have got involved in and get two or three of us. I'd love to extend. And if it helps you, Alberto, and help Semex, then that would be fantastic from my perspective. It's a pleasure. And by the way, our office is by Memorial Hospital and on Gessler. We're in Houston quite a bit, as a matter of fact. So we will try to connect. It would be my pleasure. I drove past it the other day. It's on the I-10, isn't it? I was going off to Slumbers. It's just down on the I-10 on the right-hand side. There you go. There you go. There you go. Alberto, thank you so much for sharing all of your insights, your experience, I think our clients are going to find it, our customers, our listeners are going to find it exceptionally valuable. And to Jason's point, I think there'll be a number of other opportunities for us to reconnect here in this forum and hopefully over a nice T-bone or tomahawk ribeye. Oh, and Don I, need a, oh, I believe. I need, I need a ribeye. Don I'll, I'll bring a bottle. Yeah. Don Papa. Right? Don, yeah, Don that's Papa. what he's going to bring. Don Papa. Don Papa. <laughs> Don Papa. Yeah. No. And we got to play tennis again. Yes. Yes. I've been playing, by the way. You always play. You're, you're played like that yesterday at six thirty in the morning, and you know, just kind of keep those exercise endorphins yeah. going. One of my new friends I met up here through Shell, a guy named Shores. Well, you'll you'll meet him. He's a phenomenal tennis player. We'll have to play doubles or something like that. But he's going to be on my team. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. You got it. You can have Ernesto. All you, right. You know, there's a tennis player. This little. Uh, date you guys a little bit was number two in the world never made it number one her name was patty schneider yeah, yeah and her brother worked for us believe it or not in houston oh my goodness he is a top i mean of course he never he was never ever able to make the jump but he's on the amateur circuit he's forced to be reckoned with so i'll right. arrive with some firepower okay. right. yeah, yeah yeah well you'll probably wipe the court with us but anyways guys it's been a pleasure let's do it again thank you so much Thank Jason, you. Jason, you closing remarks? Yep. Thank you very much, guys. We'll put some up. Alberto, thank you very much. We'll put some of the information on the webpage on the, the podcast. And thank you. And we'll talk to you guys again. Jerry, yeah. see thank you later. Thank you so much, Alberto. Que tengan buena noche. Buena noche. Buena tarde. Buena noche. Buena tarde. Okay. See you Ciao. later. Ciao. Bye. Hasta la vista, baby. Hasta la vista. <laughs> 
Join us again next week on the Energy Workforce of Tomorrow podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.